Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, lead content editor for No-Till Farmer. The Andersons sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yield. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. In case you don't know, Dwayne Beck just retired from running the Dakota Lakes Research Station in South Dakota in February. He's been a repeat presenter at the National No-Tillage Conference. If you don't know, you'll soon learn, Beck is a straight talker and a captivating speaker. He's also fond of the odd off-color joke. This presentation was delivered in 2016 at the National No-Tillage Conference and deals with crop rotations. You'll occasionally hear the audience clapping and laughing in the background. At the time, Beck was advocating for vegetables to be included as part of crop rotations. Here's no-till farmer staffer Daryl Brugink introducing Beck. And during this morning's lecture series, we're pleased to bring you an outstanding no-till educator and Dwayne Beck, the director of the Dakota Lakes Research Farm near Pierre, uh, Pierre South Dakota. Uh, Dwayne says that weeds, diseases, and insects are nature's way of adding diversity to a system that lacks it. You can try to find technologies that can control the problems that pop up or you can prevent most of them pro by providing beneficial diversity of your own. And Dwayne's gonna explain why no-tillers will want to rediscover rotational techniques for managing pests, especially with current cost to price ratios. He's gonna share why crop rotations that are consistent in sequence or interval provide opportunities for weeds and insects. And he'll discuss the strengths and weaknesses of different types of rotations. And Dwayne, I believe you spoke at the first no-till conference in 1993. That's what Frank tells me. I was 16. You were 16. I wasn't, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I wasn't born yet. Uh, but I think he, there was one comment you made that he says sticks with him. And he said it was out in the Dakotas, we no-till to preserve water, where he said here in Eastern Corn Belt, you no-till to get rid of some of your water. I don't know if that's true or not, or maybe Frank's making it all up. So, but please welcome Dwayne Beck. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be back here. Some of you know me and some of you don't. Uh, those that you don't, you're probably the lucky ones in the group. But uh, we got into no-till for some reasons that were... Uh, associated with irrigation. I'll explain a little bit of that either to, either now or, or later this afternoon, but it has to do with managing water. And I still remember when I started and I was a young uh, PhD graduate student type 
person and I would go into the teacher's lounge and the entomologist would say, well, if you no-till, you're going to have all these bugs. And the weed control guy said, well, if you, if you no-till, you're going to have all these weeds. And the thing that surprised me, as soon as we quit doing tillage and went back to kind of following what Mother Nature did in terms of diversity and some of the things that my grandfather did in terms of crop rotations, we really don't worry much about weeds and diseases and insects anymore. And we're going to talk a little bit about how some of that happens. Uh, Short-term studies are not accurate in predicting treatments such as tillage rotations, and rotations have long-term impacts. There's no re university researchers anymore that are doing long-term rotations to speak of, or doing long-term studies. It's all three-year stuff that's grant-funded. It's a real mistake that we're making in terms of how the federal government is supporting ag research, and you guys should be up in arms about what's happening with ag research. <clears throat> um, a farmer manages ecosystems and takes sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide and makes them into products that are to be sold, period. You guys are so busy thinking about being corn farmers and soybean farmers, and, and you've got the commodity groups that are making you think that way. But maybe we should start to look at growing vegetables because they're not going to be growing vegetables in California very much longer because they don't have the water. And if they do have the water, the people in the cities are willing to pay more for the water than, 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 the, than the irrigator can. There was a meeting tomorrow, today, Maricopa, Arizona, that I was asked to come to to present my ideas. It was a vegetable growers from Arizona, New Mexico, and California. And it's basically, what the hell do we do now if you're a vegetable grower? And I would have told them, well, you're probably going to start having to work with people in the Midwest and grow your vegetables closer to where people consume them. Ecosystem processes, water cycle, energy flow, mineral cycle, community dynamics. This is what you're working with. You're not working with all the things that you think you're working with in terms of herbicides and fertilizers and whatever. It's all part of this bigger system that you need to be considering. Because if you're just going in and doing individual little things, it's what I call whack-a-mole farming. Uh, <clears throat> wait until something goes wrong and then whack that mole and another one pops up someplace else. Have you ever played that game with your kids where you have the little little hammers? So does the rain feed plants and recharge groundwater? Does it run off or cause erosion and water quality degradation? What happens to your rainwater? Are you using your rainwater appropriately? The Dakota Lakes Research Farm began to use diverse low disturbance no-till, and cover cropping to control runoff from center pivot irrigators. <clears throat> we had, once they put the dams in in the 1940s through the 60s, everybody decided they couldn't grow crops without having irrigation out there. They grew one crop of wheat every two years. So they're going to put irrigators in and, and make a fortune. This was in the 1970s. And they pumped the water from the river up onto the land, and the water run right back to the river. <laughs> you really want to put a lot of money into an irrigation system, pump a lot of water up the hill, and have it run down the hill back to the river. 
right? <clears throat> so that's the way we got started, and we wanted to go to low-pressure irrigators. So that pivot I showed you where the runoff was occurring, they would put an inch of water on in about 40 minutes. This machine put two, put, is ours. It puts two inches of water on in nine minutes. And for people that have been there, Keith Thompson's been there, and Ray Ward's been there. David Morgan's back here in the audience. He lives in Indianapolis, but he's been to my farm because he owns some land close to us. And they've walked behind my irrigators. You don't get your feet muddy. So we use no-till to manage the water, whether it's excess water or not enough water, but we manage our water cycle. And we do it because we make the water go in the ground where it falls, not run down the hill and go into the rivers. And one of the things that's a real tool for us on our irrigated ground is night crawlers. And I know you have all kinds of them here because Eileen Kladifko works with them in, in, in the Corn Belt. Energy flow. And this one I think is really key. If a farmer harvests sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide, how much sunlight strikes green leaves and makes food for the ecosystem? How much falls on dead vegetation or bare ground? Even if you're no-tilling, if all you're doing is no-tilling and leaving dead vegetation there with the same rotations you had before, you really haven't changed how you've done the energy flow thing. How much of that sunlight are you capturing? Look at a rainforest where it gets 100% of it. Last February, I had a chance to go visit Kofi Boa in Ghana. And if you don't, if you don't know the name, it's, it would be in Howard Buffett's 40 Chances book. He has a chapter on Kofi Boa. He runs a center for no-till agriculture in Ghana. It's in the rainforest. I spent about seven days just standing there going, this is the neatest thing in the world because everything grows and it grows all the time because it rains and it's warm and, and whatever. But his way of approaching an ecosystem management is exactly the same as I, mine. We were teaching people from throughout Africa on how to manage no-till systems. And I did the dry land areas and he did the rainforest areas and, and our approach is exactly the same. Capture the energy, cycle the nutrients, not lose anything. <clears throat> we use cover and forage crops to fine-tune crop rotations, increase the carbon capture, sequester nutrients, fix nitrogen, and encourage friendlies or beneficial insects. They're a tool. No-till is a tool. You can't manage an ecosystem if you're doing tillage. Cover crops are a tool. You're not gonna use them everywhere, every place. It's like a prescription thing, it's a tool. It's another part of what you're doing. I like the forage crop part because we're integrating livestock into our system which we're eventually going to have to do, okay? We interviewed some candidates for a leadership position at the university a month or two ago. We got down to two, they were basically livestock people. I asked them both the same question, do you think there'll be feedlots in 50 years? In both cases, the answer was no. Then the harder question was, well, how are you going to change your research program at the university to get ready for that? So we're doing some things with clay seed balls, for instance, to help us do cover crops better, hopefully. 
because we'd like to be able in the drier areas to throw cover crops out and just have them grow. In Ghana, Kofi could throw bush mukuna, which is velvet bean. It's about two-thirds the size of a golf ball. He could throw it on top of the ground and it would grow <laughs> with no seed coating. I'm going, oh, gosh, that's nice. <clears throat> are you addressing the problem or are you treating a symptom? Medicine in the United States is traditionally treating symptoms, not addressing the problems. Farming in the United States, we call up and we don't ask, I've got this weed, you say, how do I kill it? You don't ask, how did it get here? How do I prevent it? You go, how do I kill it? Farmers call me and start talking to me about weed, and I just keep asking them questions because I want them to get to the point where they understand that they caused that problem. Mother Nature is an opportunist. If you, have an op if you have a problem, you have created that opportunity. Somewhere in your system, you've provided that opportunity. And I use this as an example. When they came out, and I want you to remember this, Clearfield, no, Emmy corn. Now they call it Clearfield corn, right? Fifteen years ago or more, they came out with Emmy corn that was resistant to pursuit. And I had a young grower say, I don't have to worry about rotations anymore back because he's an old guy now. I don't have to worry about rotations anymore because I have Emmy corn. I'll just put pursuit on my beans and pursuit on my corn. I'll never have a weed again. <clears throat> and I said, well, you will have weeds because it'll develop resistance to pursuit. And that resistance will go cross into other ALS herbicides. <clears throat> I got a letter from American Cyanamide. I can talk about them because they're not in business anymore. They've been bought out. <clears throat> but they wanted me to retract what I said because I had no pr proof there was going to be ALS resistance in to pursuit in weeds. And then I got a call from my boss who also got one of those letters because they were threatening a lawsuit. <clears throat> He said, is there any chance you'll change your mind? He said, I think I know the answer. <laughs> I said, I will retract in three years if we don't have resistance on Dakota Lakes Research Farm. I didn't have to retract. Strive to produce a crop which is healthy, not a crop that doesn't get sick. Now, I look around the room, there's nobody here that's sick. But if we hopped on a bicycle and went and did about 25 miles, how many of you can do that? I can do that, surprisingly. In 1993, I don't think I could have. Okay? Healthy crop. It's a whole system. No-till is part of that system. Crop rotation is part of that system. Corn, soybeans is a two-crop monoculture. And the worst part about corn soybeans, and you, if you don't believe it, come visit me, it destroys soil structure because it's not enough carbon in soybeans to maintain the soil organic matter and soil structure. So we've got a bunch of different rotations. I'll take a spade, we'll walk around the farm, and when I'm done, <clears throat> you'll have seen it for yourself. If not, you can talk to Ray <clears throat> or Captain Morgan or... Whoever. Farming system components, cultural practices, technology, and management. Right now, we're really focused on technology. 
I said to the dean of ag the other day after our president had said the future of agriculture is precision ag. I said precision ag is to agriculture like a power nailer is to carpentry. It's a hell of a tool. But you still need the man involved. It's a tool for the man to use, not a substitute for management. The cultural practices are tillage, rotation, sanitation, competition. But in nature, tillage is a catastrophic event. It's the most destructive thing man has ever done. My wife and I got to go to France and England in January and February. They gave us a car with a GPS in, in, in France, not in England. You're driving the wrong side of the road. Couldn't do that. But in France, they gave us a car with an English-speaking GPS. And we went from town to town doing meetings. And we learned lots of French, mostly swear words. We learned, <laughs> we learned some symbolism, you know, things with hands and fingers that were the same as they are here. It's like a universal language. So, <laughs> But this is caused by tillage. And I told the people in France and England, I said, my ancestors left Europe to come to the United States because they degraded the soil to the point where they couldn't make a living on it anymore. And if you go around the old castles, they all want to show you their old castle. You go around the old castles in France and England and whatever, and they've got, they're great. They're abandoned, but they're great. And and you look at them, and they, they show you the granaries and all this stuff. And I said, where did they grow the crops that went in here? Well, around the castle. I said, that ground's so degraded, you couldn't grow anything there. And then I got this real blank look, like, oh, that's what happened. But they're still using the plows in a lot of France and England. In nature, tillage is a catastrophic event. We can't continue to do that. And I'm talking to the choir, because most of you guys have kind of stopped the plowing. But now we think we're going to use GPS and variable rate to treat the variability actuated by tillage erosion. Well, the first thing we got to do is stop doing the thing. And then, yeah, it's a tool that we can deal with it. So we're going to be more dependent on crop rotation, sanitation, and competition. Sanitation is controlling in your periods between crops, like this one between wheat and corn, you don't just let weeds grow there. You either put beneficial diversity there in terms of a cover crop or you keep the thing from going to seed. The best thing is to put a beneficial cover or forage crop there. <clears throat> we don't kill our coyotes. We don't kill our rattlesnakes. And Ray knows that, don't you, Ray? <laughs> we walked in a field a few years ago. Ray came with some Nebraskans and some Ukrainians. And I went to walk into one of my fields, and there was a rattlesnake there all coiled up. And I just kind of stood with my back to him. I said, why don't you walk in over here? And the Ukrainians go, why? Don't you want to see? Well, I got something you don't want us to see back there. I said, there's a rattlesnake there. Go, that's not a rattlesnake. He's not rattling. <laughs> and Ray comes up with a spade and kind of wiggles at it, him at it, and he starts to rattle. And then they, then they followed everybody else in the field. <laughs> Pay a lot of attention to how we manage our residues. You want it uniform. We use stripper heads, actually. It really fixes that thing. 
But if you're going to be out here with a straight head in the wind, go on the other side of the field and let the straw blow away from the, the patch, right? Little tricks like that. Residue managers, we now have those. We have fertilizer placement capability. So we put all of our fertilizer within two inches of the corn row. If you broadcast fertilizer, all you're doing is feeding the weeds. And you're really taking a chance that the fertilizer is going to run off or volatilize or something bad's going to happen. I'm going to put it where my plant has preferential access. And all I really need to do with herbicide programs is to keep the weeds suppressed until I get a full canopy. The best weed control is a full canopy. And we try to keep the residue in place of last year's canopy until this year's canopy can form. Reduce the no-till systems favor inclusion of alternative crops. Two season interval between growing a given crop or crop type is preferred. Can't always do that. Some broadleaf crops require more. Corn tolerates less, you know, being pushed a little harder. Kim fallow. You know, just spraying, even between corn and beans, just spraying the ground and leaving it bare is not as effective at breaking weed disease and insect cycles as, as are doing tillage, which is a stupid thing to do. Uh, green fallow or producing a properly chosen crop. <clears throat> uh, so if you can grow another crop there or a cover crop there, that's the best thing you can do. Rotation should be sequenced to make it easy to prevent volunteer grains from the previous crop to become a problem. I can't tell you how many fields I drive by in eastern South Dakota where there's volunteer corn and soybeans. And you go, this should be easy to kill unless the soybeans and corn are both Roundup ready and the guy is a really slow learner. But it happens all the time because he puts soybeans into Roundup ready corn, sprays Roundup and can't figure out why his corn isn't, volunteer corn isn't dead. Producers with livestock enterprises find it less difficult to introduce diversity into rotation. If you got livestock, you can grow lots of different things that will make you money. Use of a forage or flexible forage grain crop and green fallow enhance ability to tailor your rotational intensity. How much water? Managing the water. Too much or too little. Crops destined for direct human food use pose the highest risk and offer the highest potential return. If you're growing vegetables, this gets to be tougher. But we have lots of people growing no-till tomatoes and no-till pumpkins and stuff like that. The desire to increase diversity and intensity needs to be balanced with profitability. You can be too diverse. If you're trying to manage 20 crops and sell them and whatever, that's a bit too diverse, unless you have a marketing crew. We'll come back to Dwayne Beck in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's podcast. A nutrient management program is essential to maximizing crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season-long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little known no-till farmer fact. 
We're talking with Dwayne Beck today, and it reminds me of the very first national no-tillage conference we held in 1993 in Indianapolis, Indiana. And Dwayne was a speaker I had on that program more than three decades ago. And I still today remember one of the comments that he made to the attendees. He said, you folks in the Eastern Corn Belt no-till to get rid of the water. But out in South Dakota, where I live, we no-till to keep every drop of water that falls. And here three decades later, I still remember that quote, and it's still true today, based on where you live and how you operate, there's a big difference in what rainfall means for you and what no-till can do to help you get rid of it or keep every drop that falls. And now we'll get back to the conversation. Soil moisture storage is affected by soil characteristics, surface residue amounts, intercrop period, snow catch. You get this thing and say, well, if I grow a cover crop, it'll be too dry in the spring. So that's usually not the case if you, if you know what you're doing, okay? Seedbed conditions at the desired seeding time are controlled by your crop rotation. You take a wheat crop and seed corn into it, that can be tough if it's a cold, wet spring. And if you haven't done a cover crop, if you've done a cover crop, you can turn that wheat crop into something that's really easy to seed. If you got the moisture to do that, that really makes, makes it easy. But sequence is only one component of a rotation. I asked somebody what the rotation is, well, I put this behind beans or I put this behind wheat, but you gotta look at longer, longer things. You gotta have proper intensity. Not too much, not too little. If you, get, if you push it too hard, you'll get dry too often. If you don't push it hard enough, you're wet too often. And what happened here when you first started no-tilling, you didn't change the rotation. You are wet too often, okay? Adequate diversity, like I said, and then you're stable and profitable. Crop rotation lets Mother Nature do her thing. It allows time for natural enemies to destroy the pathogens of one crop when unrelated crops are growing. We use fungicide on wheat when we have to. That's the only fungicide we really use during flowering time of wheat if we get a rain. We haven't used insecticides on a broadcast basis at the farm for over 14 years. Even though we do some corn on corn, okay? <clears throat> Sequence is only one component of rotation. Native vegetation is the best indicator of the range of intensities which, which are appropriate for location. Whenever I travel somewhere, the first thing I do is go look at the native vegetation. How well do you mimic in your crop rotation what that native vegetation is doing in terms of cycling nutrients and water and such? Most of the plant growth problems blamed on no-till are a result of inadequate diversity or improper intensity or improper fertilizer management. If you're not putting a band of nitrogen somewhere around a corn row in a no-till system, in my opinion, you're really We've got data that shows that's at least 20 bushel an acre hit, even if we put it on top or whatever we do. Put your water you save by no-till to work. More high water use crops, cover crops, double crops. Are the nutrients available, the nutrients in your soil available for plant use and environmental services, or have they been leached, eroded, or transported from the landscape? That's what you see in Europe. A lot of that goody is gone. That's why 
they have all these real fancy fertilizer spreaders. They need them. <laughs> there isn't much left. Ecosystems that leak nutrients become deserts. We have only been farming in the United States for 200 years, and we've only been intensively farming for probably 60 or 80 at most. You know, 40 or 50. Saline seeps indicate leakage. Decreasing pH indicates leakage. If your pH is going down, you're leaking lime and calcium's out the bottom. One unit train of soybeans contains a half a million pounds of phosphorus. Shipping your soybeans to China is leakage. I had a Taiwanese trade delegation there one day and we were showing them wheat that was growing out of a, winter wheat that was coming up out of a cover crop and I was, that was dead. And I was explaining to them that the dying cover crop was feeding nutrients to the wheat. And they said, oh, you don't need to use fertilizer. And I said, well, I do need to use, I can catch nitrogen and put it back from the air and put it back in the ground, but I can't do anything about phosphorus and potassium and some of those other things. And if I'm going to sell you my wheat, I have to buy fertilizer to replace what I sold you unless you're willing to load your poo from Taipei into a container and ship it back to me. And I got this real stunned look. <laughs> Decided I probably wasn't going to get asked to go to the diplomatic corps. <laughs> and then, as a translator translated it fully, they all start smiling and making shoveling. <laughs> in China, in ancient China, if you went to someone's house for supper, the polite thing to do was to go to the bathroom before you left. Otherwise, you'd be taking nutrients with you. Now, you may not have saline seeps because your salinity that moves is going into drain tiles. So you're shipping your fertilizer to the boys in New Orleans. They really don't want it. Okay? Or into Lake Erie. <clears throat> Cover and forage crops provide an opportunity to increase both intensity and diversities where production of a grain crop would be not be possible, would be unprofitably excessively risky. In human environments, like a lot of you guys, tall grass, prairie, or wet, wetter, the goal should be to have something growing at all times. In areas with a limited growing season, <clears throat> like the guys in Canada, this will require use of cover crops and forage crops because you can't do two grain crops in a year. You know, you can't probably do that here. It's too short a growing season, but you do one grain crop in and then fill in with cover crops. One of the things we're looking at doing is doing a perennial cover crop, growing alfalfa in association with continuous corn, for instance. So you have the cover crop there all the time and you just suppress it and let it come back and you have that deep rooted thing of a perennial that you like. In subhumid, semi-arid and arid areas like us, cover crops can be utilized to increase organic matter and biological activity. A good friend of mine in North Dakota called his cover crops catch and release nutrients. I stole it. <laughs> Right? You catch and release fish, you catch and release your nutrients. What you're doing with a cover crop, this nitrogen that would go in your drain tile and go away, 
put it in that plant, release it next year during the growing season. Putting it in the bank. Here's a study that we did. Uh, soil test nitrogen, 108 pounds the acre. We soil test at three feet for nitrate nitrogen. Yield goal, 220 bushel acre in corn. Uh, we had wheat with going to a cover crop uh, with after wheat with uh, lentils, chickling vetch, and turnip, where we put no nitrogen on the next spring, 176 bushel corn, where we put on 36 pounds of nit nitrogen, 236, and then it didn't make any difference, so we put on 72 or 108. Now, urea is cheap, but it's not free. Just what grows some of our own. If you get stranded in the rain in the back 40, you're talking about wet conditions. If you get stranded in the rain and it's wet and it's soppy, and you get stranded in the back 40, do you drive home across the tilled field or the pasture? That's just long-term no-till with soil structure. Wet soil should not be an issue if no-till is properly done, if you got the soil structure. Neither is grazing cattle. Weeds and diseases are nature's way of adding diversity to a system that lacks diversity. We counter these by adding diversity of our own. I want to see at least three crop types. Long intervals of two to four years are needed to break some disease and weed cycles. That was Dwayne Beck presenting to the National No-Tillage Conference in 2016. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lusseter one more time. When you look at what has happened with no-till over the past five or six decades, there's been significant changes. And one of the changes that's really happened in the equipment area is the use of colders. If you go back to the surveys we did in the 1990s, there were at least 94% of the no-tillers in the 90s who were using colders. The latest survey we have on the no-till benchmark survey shows that's dropped to about 44% who are using colders. So the majority of folks who are no-tilling today have given up colders, and most of them have not found any drop in yields. In fact, there's data from the Calmer Research Farm in Western Illinois that shows that with and without no-till colders, there was uh, less than a one bushel per acre difference in no-till corn yields. That concludes this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make this series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail.com at notillfarmer.com. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>